Hey, this is Matt Stacy, youth pastor at New Life, and this is our podcast. I hope that the preaching and teaching you listen to here encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with God. This podcast is a ministry of New Life, and as such, is completely free to the listener. That being said, if you feel led to give to this ministry, we want to make that available to you. You can text GIVE to 833-793-0451. You can also give online through the Tithely app by searching New Life Tabernacle. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the message. If you wouldn't mind, help me pray over this tonight. Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to be in your presence, to hear from your word. God, I ask you to help me to teach in a way that you can anoint. God, help me to say everything you'd have me to say, nothing more, nothing less. Open up your word to us, God. Illuminate it. Open up our understanding. God, help us to be doers of your word and not just hearers only. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Here we are at the third letter to the churches. I feel like we're moving along at a good pace through the book of Revelation. This letter is written to the church that is at Pergamos. Pergamos. Pergamos is located about 55 miles north of Smyrna. The city had a population of around 200,000 people. Pergamos was a university town. It was a place uh, of intellectuals and poets and philosophers. It boasted one of the largest libraries of the day. In fact, it was that library that Marcus Antony gave as a gift to Cleopatra and moved that library to Egypt. Pergamos was home to a 10,000 seat amphitheater. Politically, it was the capital city of the area. Spiritually, it was a satanic stronghold. That's the city of Pergamos that we're getting ready to study. And yet, God had a church in that city. We're looking at verses 12 through 17 tonight. If you wouldn't mind reading verse 12 with me. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Amen. We talked before how in each one of these letters, Jesus identifies something about himself that is important for the church to know, whether it's new information or whether it's a reminder, he still feels the need to let them know. Here he reminds them of the two-edged sword that is his word. He that hath the sharp sword with two edges. The picture that would have come to mind if you were there is that of a Roman broadsword. It was used for close combat. It had two very sharp edges. It could cut you either way. It swung. This sword that Jesus said that he had 
was a sword of judgment. Not only was it a sword of judgment, but it represented the power that is in the word of the Lord. I've said it before, when the end comes and that great battle comes, it'll be over with just the spoken word of the Lord. Jesus just has to speak the word and the battle is over. We have to labor and we have to pray and fight and battle, but Jesus just has that sharp two-edged sword that is His word. And when He speaks, nothing can stand against His word. The winds and the waves, they found out rather quickly that they couldn't oppose the word of the Lord. The legion of demons inside of the man, whenever Jesus stepped ashore and they came to worship Him, they found out they couldn't disobey the word of the Lord. The universe, when God spoke it into existence, found out that it had to obey the word of the Lord. And there's nobody breathing, not breathing, nowhere in the world, nothing in the world that can oppose the word of the Lord. There's power in His Word. Jesus wanted to remind His church though, because He didn't just say that it was sharp, it's powerful. He said that it's the sword kind of as a reminder, just throwing it out there. If you're wondering which sword it is, it's the one that has two edges. It's the sharp one, but it's the one that has two edges. What does that mean? Jesus reminds His church that that sharp two-edged sword that we love so much and we're thankful for, it cuts both ways. It doesn't just cut one way. It's able to search and convict, but it is also able to condemn and execute. I'm thankful for the Word of the Lord. When I'm in the presence of the Lord, it's His Word that convicts me and that draws me to uh, right standing with Him. It draws me to repentance. I'm thankful today for every preacher, and that includes my pastor who has done it faithfully for years, all of my life. But I'm thankful for every preacher that has had the courage to identify sin in my life by the preached Word of God. And just it just cuts straight to my heart. I'm thankful for those opportunities because His Word is sharp and we've got to have it. But you know what His Word does to those that are not in the church, to those that are outside of the, of the will of God, outside of the church? It's a sword of judgment. It's not a sword of conviction. It's a sword of execution. When they stand before Almighty God, they've got to deal with the Word of the Lord that was written and how their life stood up against that sharp, two-edged sword. Hebrews 4.12 put it this way, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You can't even hide from the Word of the Lord. You can hide from the preacher. But you can't hide from the word of the Lord. 
What does that mean? That means that you could be sitting on the pew looking like you've got it all together. The preacher has no idea what's going on in your life. But when that word goes forth, your heart knows the difference. Your heart can't hide from the word of the Lord. I'm thankful for the word of the Lord. Jesus said to the church, I'm here and I've brought my sword. Verse 13, he said, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. I love this. And Jesus does it in every letter that is written. He says, I know. It's just a reminder. I know. How foolish the heart is that thinks that they can escape the all-seeing gaze, the all-knowing gaze of Almighty God. Once again, we find ourselves confronted with the fact that Jesus knows. And what does Jesus know? He knows two things, he says. He says he knows their works and he knows where they live. He's not taken by surprise. He hasn't lost their address. He knows exactly where they are. We look and he says that they're located at the seat of Satan. What does that mean? Pergamos was a center, if you will, of pagan worship. The other two cities were as well, but not quite like Pergamos. There were many religious cults. The other cities, maybe one or two, but here we have many religious cults and temples to various gods. Not only that, and this could be actually what Jesus was referring to, but if you were there that day, you would come across the nearly 40-foot altar built for Zeus. This was the seat of Satan. Satan is mentioned in four of the seven letters to the churches. What does that tell us? That tells us that Satan is actively, always working to destroy the church. Amen? But be that as it may, Satan is not omnipotent and he's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere all the time. Here we have his headquarters. We've identified his base of operation, and it is the city of Pergamos. How would you like to have Satan as a neighbor? Amen. You know, there's always that person that has a flat tire, and it was Satan that gave him the flat tire. But how would you like to really be in the city, the same city where Satan had his headquarters? And it wasn't just, you know, there's always the, the spiritual, the real spiritual one, that everything is spiritual and they can see Satan behind every wall and corner. And Brother Chad, it wasn't that person that told you that you were next to the seat of Satan. It was Jesus himself who says, I see you and you're living 
in the headquarters, if you will, of Satan. And it's there that we understand the context. Jesus says, I know where you live. Because no doubt there are people in the church that are thinking, we've got to be given a little bit of a break. Not everybody is, is trying to have a church at the seat of Satan, the stronghold of Satan. And yet, God says, Jesus says, I know where you are. I know where you're located. I am aware of your neighbor and the unique difficulty that comes with that. One writer speaking of this situation says, God knows your neighborhood. He knows every little detail of the environment in the midst of which your life has been placed. He knows the peculiar temptations of your job, the dangers which the company of certain people create for you, the difficulties you have to face in the sphere in which your life moves. Jesus knows. Jesus is aware. Jesus is aware of the spouse that is doing everything they can to live for God and to have their babies live for God, but their spouse doesn't like God, doesn't have any desire to live for God. Jesus sees the struggle that's there, the inner turmoil of that heart, the stress and the unique difficulty of that situation. Jesus sees the young person that goes to a school surrounded by people who do not fear God, do not love God, do not respect God or His Word. Jesus sees the saint of God that is working a job, fighting to remain pure, but living in the middle of a sinful world, surrounded by sinful co-workers and by sinful uh, ideologies. Jesus knows. Jesus has not forgotten about you. That's the encouragement we can get from Jesus telling the church of Pergamos, I know where you live. I see your situation. I know the struggle that you're going through. And there's no one in this place tonight that Jesus has forgotten about that doesn't see the unique difficulty that is your life living for Him. We also have to identify. We've identified the fact that He knows. He knows the situation. He sees where we're living. But we also must understand that His knowing the situation of the church at Pergamos did not cause Jesus to lower His standard for them. His standard remained stable. His standard remained undeterred, uncompromised. The church was still expected to obey and stay faithful to Jesus. Jesus wouldn't even lower His standard for a church that had Satan for a neighbor. And there are those that say, well, we're living in a new day. 
We're living in a new time. There are new customs and a new culture and, and new situations. It's a new world. But guess what? If Jesus wasn't willing to lower the standard for a church that was trying to reach a city in literally Satan's headquarters, he's not going to lower his standard for the church today. The same thing that it took to please him in the Old Testament and that takes to please him in the New Testament is the same thing that it takes to please God today. Amen. The same is true for us today. So you are not alone and God sees the situation that you are in. He sees the situation that I am in. And yet he expects us to stay faithful and pure in that situation. You say, how is that even possible? My Bible says greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so if they can live for God in the middle of Satan's throne, if they can live for God in the middle of Satan's headquarters, then we can build a church for God in Purcell, Oklahoma. Amen. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Amen. Some people would say that it's impossible to live for God under these circumstances. Don't you see the daily bombardment that we face from the world? It's everywhere. If you've got a cell phone, it's literally walking around with you all throughout the day. If you go to school in a secular, uh, in a secular school, then you've got to see uh, advertisements and people and worldliness all around you. If you work in the secular field, then you've got to come into contact all day long with people who don't fear God or love God. It's hard to live for God in this world. And yet Jesus says that it's possible. And we know that it's possible because the church at Pergamos was able to do it literally at the headquarters, the stronghold of Satan. Amen. So that person who would tell you that it's not possible to live for God the way that the Bible says live for God in 2021, you just point them to the church of Pergamos and you say, if they can do it, we can do it. Amen. Jesus looks and he says, Thou holdest fast my name. He's complimenting the church. And hast not denied my faith even when someone was killed for it. I put it in my own language there. Somebody in their church ended up suffering the ultimate consequence for their faith in Jesus. For living for God. For staying faithful. And Jesus compliments his church for staying faithful and holding fast to the name of the Lord and keeping the faith. Here's something that's true in every generation. It was true then and it's true now. The world does not mind worship of Jesus. Worshiping Jesus is not the issue. That's not the problem. They are okay with you worshiping Jesus as long as you'll worship Jesus and everything else and everyone else. As long as you're okay worshiping a multiplicity of gods, then they're okay. In that day, it's interesting. We, just to give context to 
to why Jesus said it the way that he said it, holding fast to my name and not denying the faith. Everyone in that day was to take a handful of grain, if you're in that day, and they've got a fire that is built for uh, the Caesar, the emperor. It was emperor worship. You were required to take a handful of this grain, didn't cost you much, wasn't a big deal, didn't really mean much. Brother Jeff, you could have done it and, and had no love in your heart for Caesar, for the emperor. But you were required to throw this grain into the fire and say, Caesar is Lord, and walk away. And that's all that was required of you. And you know what? No doubt, as I just said, there were plenty of people in that day who would do that and had no love in their heart for Caesar. Didn't worship Caesar, didn't really want to obey Caesar, probably didn't even like him. But yet they were willing to submit to throwing a sacrifice his way just because that's what's done. You sacrifice to Caesar. You say Caesar is Lord, you give him some sacrifice. But the Christian, unique among all of the religions in the day, you've got Judaism and you've got Christianity and if you were alive in that day, uh, the, the Roman government actually was giving, this is before the great persecution that was getting ready to hit the church. And um, the reason for that is because they were considering at the time Christianity to be kind of an offshoot or a branch of Judaism. And the issue that the world was having with these crazy Christians is these crazy Christians came along and they weren't willing to just hold their nose and throw the sacrifice into the fire and say Caesar is Lord and go about their business. Because there was a deep understanding and commitment to one God, Jesus Christ, and nobody else. Just strong monotheism. They were not okay, even just a little bit of another God sitting beside Jesus Christ. There is no room for any other God on the throne of Jesus Christ. So here we are in this day, and, and you wonder where the persecution started. The persecution started whenever the church wasn't even willing just to do that just little gesture, just that little gesture to Caesar, because Caesar was not Lord to them. Jesus was Lord and is Lord. That made them angry. Not their love for Jesus. Not their commitment to Jesus, but their refusal to compromise even just a little bit uh, of, of their time, of their loyalty, of their commitment to another God, no matter how insignificant. And so this is why Jesus compliments the church for holding fast to his name. Because in the middle of a culture where everybody was doing it, whether they meant it or not, whether they really love Caesar or not, everybody was doing it, but the Christians at Pergamos weren't doing it. They weren't giving in. They were holding fast to the name of Jesus. And there may come a day where we have to do the very same thing, where we have to give up some stuff. Because you know what happens the moment that they decided in that community not to take part in that? Everybody knew and everybody identified them as a Christian. There was no hiding once you decided to stand up against that and not participate in that. Amen. So Jesus compliments them. They refused to give up the name of Jesus. They held fast. 
and they refuse to deny the faith. Let's look at verse 14. We've got the compliments from the Lord, and now we have something else. Jesus says, But I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. He said, I have a few things against thee. I've got a question tonight. When you hear that word, compromise, what comes to your mind? What emotion is stirred up inside of you? For me, it's a terrible taste. I can't stand even that word compromise. There's just something inside of me that it just, it just, I don't like it. Don't like it at all. And yet, I'm aware tonight that there is two kinds of compromise. There's a wise compromise and there's a worldly compromise. Example of a wise compromise is a husband and wife who have a disagreement and they can come to a compromise for the peace in the home or even at work and that kind of thing. There's a, there's a compromise that takes place. You want to do it this way, the boss wants it done this way, the boss is willing to meet somewhere in the middle. Sometimes if you, if you have a uh, understanding boss. So that's a wise compromise. And then there's a worldly compromise. And that's the compromise I think of whenever I hear that word. We live in a culture of compromise. We live in a culture that is ate up with compromise. And the church in this hour and in this day must resist with everything in us a spirit of compromise. We've got to keep compromise from getting into the church. Compromise may be okay in your relationship with your boss and you discussing how to best get your work done. Compromise may be okay in your marriage and it is okay and it's necessary in your marriage in order to have a peaceful home. But compromise in the church is never acceptable. It's never okay. We were made to stand out, not fit in. Jesus said, they've hated me, they're going to hate you. This move, this push in Christianity for a more seeker-friendly church is not the will of God. We want to be a Jesus-friendly church, not just a seeker-friendly church. We want to be a church that pleases Jesus, not pleases people. We were built to stand out, not fit in. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And that's emphatic in the Greek. The only salt, the only light which means that if the world decides to lose its saltiness, its savor, the Bible says, wherewith can it be salted? There's no other hope for the world if the church stops being the church. If the church stops being the light, then darkness wins. 
You know the only way to defeat darkness? You've got to turn on the light. You can't turn on darkness. You can't turn off darkness. There's no switch for darkness. The only thing you can do is turn on the light. So how can darkness win? How can darkness take over? If the world starts to, or the church starts to decide to be more like the world. Compromise is unacceptable in the church. And yet here we have the church of Pergamos. And it's interesting. He compliments them on the one hand for holding fast to the name of Jesus and not denying the faith. That tells me that at least there's a majority in this church of Pergamos that is doing what they can to live for God. That is doing what they can to please God. But here is the problem. The church at Pergamos, whether they were all participating in compromise, they were tolerating compromise. The majority indeed were faithful to Jesus and His Word, but many were not. And the ones that were not, were not being confronted by the ones who were. We're supposed to love the sinner and hate the sin. There's no way around that. You can't love the sin. You can't love the thing that is destroying the life of your friend or your loved one. You love your friend. You love that loved one. But you hate the sin that is corrupting them and destroying them. But the church at Pergamos, they loved the sinner. And apparently, they accepted the sin and decided not to confront the sin. They were, if you will, harboring heresy allowing it to stay comfortable inside of the church. It's that kind of church that never preaches anything tough or never preaches anything difficult. The pastor stays committed to holiness and the word and the majority stay committed to holiness and the word, but nothing ever comes across the pulpit that stirs the heart of the sinner that's sitting in the pew and that's not acceptable to Almighty God. Whenever you walk into the presence of God, you ought to be able to trust that, that you're walking into a church that is preaching and teaching the whole Word of God, not just the parts that are pleasing to the ear. Amen. We've got to have a church that doesn't accept sin, that preaches the Word. And yet the church of Pergamos here harboring heresy. They were harboring two specific heresies the Bible identifies. Number one, they were harboring the doctrine of Balaam. And number two, they were harboring the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The doctrine of Balaam refers to the Old Testament story of Balaam and Balak, if you remember it. Balaam was the prophet that was for hire. And we've got plenty of those today too in our world that we're living in. You know, the preacher that'll baptize you in the name of Mickey Mouse if you'll pay him enough. There's plenty of those preachers that are in the world that'll tell you whatever you want to hear as long as you're donating to the church. That's not the will of God. The will of God is for a, pre a preacher to be, on, to be beyond that, to be just committed to the Word. And so you've got Balaam, and Balaam's looking for a payday, and whatever it takes. So this man comes along and... And he's, his name is Balak, and he's the enemy of the people of God, and he's willing to pay. But what's he willing to pay for? He's willing to pay Balak, or Balaam, who is supposed to be the prophet of God, to curse Israel. 
And Balak talks to the Lord about it and he really wants to do it because he really wants the money. And the Lord finally relents and says, you can, but you can only say what I tell you to say. And so Balaam goes and Balaam tries to curse him, doesn't work. Whenever he opens his mouth to curse him, out of his mouth comes blessing to Israel. He did it three times, three different heights and places. And you know that it was stirring Balak up. It was making him angry. And no doubt Balaam was embarrassed. He was paid. He, he should have been able to, to, to fulfill his pledge. I said, I'd curse him. I'm trying, but the Lord won't let me. All I can do is bless him. So Balaam decides, if you can't curse Israel, you've got to do the next best thing. You've got to corrupt Israel. And so he told Balak how to corrupt Israel. You corrupt Israel through sexual immorality and through idolatry. That's how you corrupt Israel. And so if you read in the book of Numbers, you come across the story where the young man takes a woman of um, the pagan uh, society and he brings her in and he actually sleeps with her outside of the tabernacle. You talk about removing the hand of favor from your life. Balaam 100% succeeded in his job to get the hand of the Lord away from Israel. And there was a plague that took over Israel. And that plague wasn't satiated until the son of the priest drove a spear through both of those young people. And then the plague was ceased. But it shows us a principle. You say that's harsh. It shows us a principle that God is committed to a people that is committed to Him. And you, as long as you're staying faithful to God and you're staying loyal to God and submitted to His Word, you've got the hand of God covering you and covering your life and covering your family. But the moment you decide to walk away, the moment you decide to, uh, to let God go and the things of God go, the hand of God's coming off your life. That's the doctrine of Balaam. And so inside this church, they have allowed, they have harbored the doctrine of Balaam. And the Nicolaitans, that's basically the New Testament version of this very old doctrine. Here's something that's true. If you want to destroy the potential on your life, the anointing of God on your life, and God's favor removed from your life, all you need to do is give your love and adoration to another. If your goal is to get the hand of God off your life, if your goal is to get the anointing of God away from you and off of your life, all you need to do is go into idolatry. Give yourself over to another. Idolatry is serious sin. Serious, serious sin. There is... Um, in some places, a law. If you owned, uh, let's say, a thousand acres, and you decided you wanted to sell all of that land except for one acre in the middle of that thousand acres, you're able to do that. And legally, you're able to build a road from the edge of the thousand acres all the way to the middle one acre so that you have access to that, to that one acre. The same is true with our lives spiritually. 
If you decide I'm going to sell everything I've got and give, give to the Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm going all in except for this one little place in my heart. I'm not going to commit that to God. This is mine, whether it's my finances, uh, whatever it is. You, in fact, I don't even have to say it tonight. As I'm, as I'm teaching this, you can think of something in your heart and in your life maybe that is that one place that you don't want to give to God. You'll give everything else but that one place. Satan has access to you because of that one. It doesn't matter how much you've given to God. It doesn't matter how much you've committed to God. You've committed 99%, but as long as you've got that one acre, he has legal access into your life. He can build a road there, and he can control you from that one place. Idolatry is a serious, serious sin. Amen. What is an idol? An idol is anything or anyone that you cannot live without. Anything or anyone that you cannot live without. Anyone that you run to and trust in fully or give all of your devotion to unreservedly is an idol. Idols come in many forms. Idols come in the form of money. Idols come in the form of things. Idols come in the form of sports and entertainment. There are many different areas where idols come. And make no mistake... You are not beyond the war that it takes place in every heart every day. There is a war that takes place every day in your heart. You may not be aware of it every day because you've got to be spiritually discerned to understand the war that's taking place. But every day that you wake up, what did Paul say? He said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Every day when you wake up, you're in a war. Your heart is in a war. And what's the war taking place? Between God and the things of this world that would like to sit on the throne of your heart. Every day you're in a war. And that's why every day we've got to wake up and we've got to recommit ourselves to God and cast down every care before His throne and every would-be idol before His throne because we don't want anything to separate us from God. Amen. Idolatry is a very serious sin. And it doesn't start quickly. It's a slow fade. Compromise is a slow fade. Here's the truth about compromise. That church of Pergamos, no doubt, they did not start with the intention to allow sin to just be okay amongst their people. And in their, in their congregation. That wasn't the intention. But slowly, little by little, letting go here or letting go there or not dealing with this issue or not dealing with that issue. And then all of a sudden, it's just okay in the house of God. Here's some truths about compromise. Never happens quickly. A ship does not find itself off course. The course that it's supposed to be on. Because the captain grabbed the wheel and jerked it off course real quick. Doesn't happen. The captain is quickly, he's, he's following the map and the chart and he's keeping things together. If a ship finds itself off course, it's because of that invisible wave that was crashing into it all night. It's because of the invisible wind that was blowing against it and pushing it slowly, little by little. It's those invisible currents 
that just one after another stack up until where all of a sudden you wake up in the morning and you realize that your ship is way off course, not where you intended to be. Pastor used to say it a lot that sin will take you farther than you ever, it would keep you longer than you ever thought that you would stay and take you farther than you ever thought that you would go. That's how compromise works. It doesn't, it's not just a quick turn. It's just a little giving in here and a little giving in there until you're all the way away from where you started and you have no idea how I got here. That's the way compromise works. Little, by little. Compromise always lowers the standard. If you've got a conviction, if you've got uh, if something in your life, remember there are three kinds of conviction. There's biblical conviction and that applies to everybody across Christianity. And then there's pastoral conviction. There are certain things that the pastor of a church feels impressed and in need of because of maybe the environment or the city that he's in to take a stand against. And the pastor's able to do that. And then there's the third realm, and that's personal conviction. And I'm afraid it's that third realm of personal conviction that is almost unheard of today. Everybody just wants the minimum. But you know what compromise does? No, compromise never comes along and says, let's raise the bar. Compromise never comes along and says, you're, you're, you're not doing enough. I think you can give more. I think you can do more for God. Compromise comes along and compromise is the one that says in your ear, well, you've been doing this for a long time. I, I think you can give in. I think you can rest. I think you can just let go. That's what compromise does. It always lowers the standard. Next thing compromise does is it's always that first step towards total disobedience. Compromise is the, just the first step. Look at the life of David. His compromise with Bathsheba, how does it start? First, it starts with him compromising his responsibilities as king. The Bible says while kings were at war, David was back at the palace. He first compromised his responsibility as king and then, interestingly enough, we don't know how long this uh, relationship with his eyes and Bathsheba's body had been going on. Could have been a long time. We don't know how long he wrestled with it. But we know he compromised his eyes. And he allowed his eyes to see things that they should not have saw. And with that, he compromised his integrity. The next thing he did is he compromised his leadership. How did he do that? Did you know that he, if you read the Bible, that he sent his servants to go get Bathsheba? This was not a secret in the palace. He wasn't even throwing it under the rug. Everybody knew because he sent his servants to go get her. And it all started with him just compromising his responsibility as king. Little compromises turn into big compromises. Compromising at home as a father and becoming an absentee father, not there for your children, turns into compromising the faith. Same with mothers and same with children. You don't want to compromise. You don't want to start down that road. You want to be everything you can be for God every day. We look at verse 16 and 17, and we're just going to read the first part of 16. And this is the solution. This is the cure. This is the answer. Because as I said before, Jesus never 
condemns. He never brings that condemnation without showing them a way out. And so he tells them, you've compromised. The majority of y'all are still believing the truth and, and believe in holiness and hanging in there, but you're allowing those that don't believe to just stay on the pew unconvicted, un- unmoved. He gets on to them, he corrects them, and then Jesus gives them the answer. Verse 16, he says, repent, repent, repent. What is the solution? Repentance. What is the answer? Repentance. Is the answer walking away from God? No. The answer is always repentance. When correction comes, when conviction comes, the answer is not run away. The answer is not embarrassment and hide your face from the church. The answer is always repentance. When David was confronted by the man of God and the man of God pointed his finger in David's chest and said, you're the man. David could have responded like Saul. He could have got angry. He could have got emotional. He could have ran away. He could have done all kinds of things. But David, the Bible says, he just dropped on his knees and repented. It hit him all all at once. That conviction from Almighty God. Repentance is the answer. And I really believe that was David's finest hour because it's the tale of two kings. He's faced with the opportunity to go down the same road that Saul did. And instead of going down that road and blaming everybody else, David says, I'm the man. I'm the one. You're right, man of God. I've got to get right with God. I've got to repent. Repentance is the answer. I wonder if you wouldn't mind standing. Repentance is the answer. The answer is never walking away. I put it out on social media the other day, but here's the truth. Conviction is the mercy of God. Every time you feel convicted in your spirit, in your soul, you feel that tug on your, on your life that says, I'm not doing something that's, I'm doing something that's wrong and I need to get it right. That's the mercy of God. That's the mercy of God. You ought to repent and then you ought to thank God for His conviction. Every time God gets on, gets on to you. Every time, the Bible says He chastises those that He loves. He corrects those that He loves. You know who loves the child, which, which parent loves the child the most? It's not that one that spoils that child. It's the one that corrects the child. That's the one that loves the child. Because it, it, it sees a future in which no correction happens. Amen. Where somebody else has to correct. The, the prison's full of, of people's children who they didn't correct them. So the, the government has to correct them. And the state has to correct them. Jesus corrects those that he loves. That's that's mercy. That's not judgment. People say that's judgment whenever whenever conviction comes. That's judgment. No, that's mercy. Judgment is whenever it doesn't come. When conviction stops coming. When you come to the presence of God and a message is preached and comes across the pulpit and pastor's given everything he's got And he's preaching and he's touching a sin that you know is in your heart. But you don't feel anything inside of you that says, I got to get right with God. Judgment has come to your house that day. When conviction stops moving you, that's when judgment has come. 
It's the searing of a conscience. It's the most dangerous place that you can be. No longer feeling that tug to get right with God. That's a dangerous spot. That's judgment. The silence of God on that moment. That that no longer pulling on you. That's the judgment of God. I want the mercy of God. When I'm wrong, I want the mercy. I want you to correct me, Jesus. I want you to pull my heart. It's the goodness of, of God that draws us to repentance. I wonder tonight if we could just find a place to pray. You know better than I do. And I know my own heart better than you know it. If you've got a war that's going on for your heart, I wonder if we could find a place right now. And let's just touch God. Let's pray for the mercy of God that shows up through conviction. In the name.